0: Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. While rural America may have had its voice heard in our recent election, the numbers show that more and more Americans, as well as citizens around the world, are moving to cities. Look at any demographic map of the U.S., and it's clear we're becoming a more urban nation. As such, cities are the vital link in our cultural, social, and economic well-being. But they also, by virtue of their density, are laboratories for so many of the larger problems that face the larger society. Problems of inequality, education, race, class, and creative destruction are all playing themselves out in our cities. My guest, Cornell Professor William Goldsmith, thinks that they're also target-rich in opportunity. William Goldsmith is Professor Emeritus in the Department of City and Regional Planning at Cornell, and he's the author of the new book, Saving Our Cities, A Progressive Plan to Transform Urban America. Bill Goldsmith, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be talking to you
0: great to have you here. Is there a danger in painting urban America today all cities with such a broad brush? Because we certainly have cities that are thriving, that are doing well, that are seeing tremendous growth, and then we have cities in parts of the country that that are really struggling, that are really uh, in need of of serious transformation.
1: Well, that's certainly uh, the first question one ought to ask, especially facing the news of Booming places like the Bay Area, San Francisco itself, where almost no one ordinary can afford to live anymore, or Manhattan, or Seattle, uh, even Central City, Philadelphia. They're all celebrated for their uh, innovations, their fancy restaurants, their good food shops, their uh, extraordinarily expensive uh, real estate. Uh, But, you know, even in those very elegant and sought-after places, there are very serious problems still, I focus on four, uh, with uh, budgets, austerity, with uh, schools. Um, Large numbers of kids still don't get good schooling in those cities. Uh, With uh, food and nutrition, there are still neighborhoods uh, that it's fair to call food deserts where people have a hard time getting fresh fruit and vegetables either uh, in local grocery stores or um, at restaurants where they have a lot of fast food stuff available and junk food Um, and uh, there are still neighborhoods in the best of those cases that are attacked uh, by the drug war Uh, so um, yes and no Um, uh, we've had enormous success in these big cities uh, a, a select number of them. Uh, but even in those successful cases, uh, the problems persist and they're very serious problems and they're very costly, I argue, uh, for those cities, for their metropolises, and uh, in the end for the nation.
0: Has this disparity that we're talking about, even within successful cities, in terms of some of these poorer neighborhoods in, in a New York or a San Francisco, Is that something that has always been inherent in discussions about urban America, that the cities become so bifurcated? Well,
1: um, again, uh, I would like to answer yes and no. Um, In one sense, there's been an anti-urban bias in the United States, uh, well, for decades, for centuries. Um, Thomas Jefferson certainly uh, expressed this. Uh, He argued with Hamilton uh, about Cities um, and, and there's been a, a sort of a legislative um, restraint on the prosperity of cities, and maybe the best metaphor for this is that um, in the United States, it's I think it has never happened that a mayor has been elected president, but in Western European democracies, it's quite expected mm-hmm. that uh, the first step in the ladder or an early step in the ladder to become prime minister or president, is to be mayor of a large metropolis, a large city which may in fact govern much of its metropolis. Um, so uh, uh, there's been that difference, but the, the really big differences I think come with um, separation of suburbs and formal jurisdictional lines for school districts, where suburbs have good schools and cities almost by definition have poor schools. Uh, And, and, you know, you can only go to the school in the suburbs if you can afford to live in the suburbs. And so that sort of bright line uh, from school district to school district has served for decades, certainly through the 20th century, to distinguish uh, city failure from suburban success. So, yeah, cities have sort of been strangled, and of course it's been racially codified, so cities... Uh, were once seen as um, the holes in the donut, with uh, dark-skinned, um, well, low-income populations surrounded by suburban areas with uh, white-skinned, uh, better-off populations. That's been going on since the Chicago School of Urban Studies in the early 20th century, mm-hmm. and uh, no one is ever really challenged it. I say it's no longer a donut, but a checkerboard, because we have plenty of poor suburbs today. And of course, with the pressures in places like San Francisco, anybody with less money is just sort of forced to move out. So gradually, whole neighborhoods that once were uh, black and poor or Latino and poor are being transformed into white and uh, and quite well-off. And those people then move to sort of pockets of poverty in what we traditionally call suburbs.
0: It's interesting that as we look at those areas in urban America that have gentrified what you're talking about, that they, they gentrify in so many different ways except for the educational part, the school system part. And and that slack is picked up by private schools, but the school system, the public school system, never seems to gentrify.
1: Oh boy, I think you've nailed it. I mean, when when I was looking for examples around the country uh, of exactly that phenomenon, what I discovered was that, um, and and this would often have occurred literally to my uh, graduate student research assistants who had lived in cities with their parents until they got maybe to the fifth grade or sixth grade when their parents said, oh, the junior high school or the middle school here is crummy, So we're going to pack up and move across the boundary line between the city and the suburb. It could be half a mile away. Mm -hmm. And then our daughter or our son will get into a school in the suburb and that school will teach well enough so that son or daughter will end up going to college. And and it happened. I heard this story time and time again and then the statistics bear it out. You're absolutely right. One of the reasons is... um, well, there are several reasons. Some of the people moving into the cities to gentrify are old enough not to have school-age children. Some of them uh, are young enough not to have school-age children, and uh, the third group is well enough off to send their kids to private schools. But remember, that the, the percentage of kids going to not public schools in the United States is still, I think, below 10%, and a lot of those are going to parochial schools, which, at least historically, were very much like sort of neighborhood public schools, uh, just uh, for the most part, Catholics, kids, kids went to them, and that was the vast majority of private schools. The, the number of kids who actually go to what we used to call prep schools is still very, very small, though uh, it used to be almost none in San Francisco, it's now... You know, one knows them. There are lots of kids who do this. So yeah, you're right. You've nailed it. That's one of the biggest, biggest differences. Though the, yeah, maybe that's it.
0: If we looked at that, one wonders what would happen, I mean, if you sort of take that speculation a step further, if we dramatically improved, if you could wave the proverbial magic wand and improve the educational system in some of these inner cities, how that would play out and what impact that it would have in terms of the population that's there or that it would attract? Oh, I
1: think the the effects would be enormous. First, it would have two major effects. One is it would serve better the population that's already there, Um, though this policy, whatever it would be, uh, federal funding, state-level funding, sometimes county-level funding, would um, have to protect um, poor suburban school districts as well. But if it, if it, it took place, it means that kids of people without enough money to buy places in expensive areas would be able to go to good schools, but it would also, of course, mean that people who maybe could stretch to send their kids to private schools or stretch to live in a suburb when they'd really rather live in the city would, in fact, choose to live in the city and send their kids to public schools. It, of course, happens. You know, it happens um, when, when, when you're in the city and the school districts are good enough. Uh, then the kids, and, and this is true in a lot of, neighborhoods across the United States where schools are subsidized informally by collections taken up by parents in the neighborhoods who have enough money and they're ferocious in demanding their privilege because it's a lot cheaper uh, to pay uh, for an improved school district than it is to send uh, a kid or two or three kids to private schools. So there's tremendous pressure on this and the, the, the collection rates, oh, to pay the band teacher, to pay the orchestra teacher, to uh, pay for the uh, uh, fourth grade class trip to Paris, or whatever they're paying for. <laughs> uh, from, from parents just taking it up and doing it through the PTA uh, is qu- quite noticeable across the country.
0: The other th- part of this is the degree to which cities become reflective of kind of the larger societal issue of inequality. That that we see it in cities, we've seen it in cities for a long time, but now it's kind of writ large in that, that cities are really reflecting some larger national issues in, inside of themselves.
1: Oh yeah. I, uh, I, as you know, the first couple of chapters, the focus of my book is on austerity and inequality and of course we all know this now because, I guess because of the the the, the, the Wall Street um, disputes about the 1% versus the 99% so it's in the vocabulary it's even in the presidential debates these things came up this year between the two mm-hmm. 1%ers debating one another um, and uh, so this sort of national malaise, or national, let me just call it what it is, inequality, uh, has grown uh, astonishingly worse in the last 40 years or so. You know, there was a post-war period, really from the middle of the New Deal until 1970 or even 1980, When inequalities diminished in this country, racial inequalities diminished, income inequalities diminished, there was an expectation that people from the working class, uh, that their children would would be better off than they were, and it it was true, more or less. Since about 1970, or as I said, 1980, sort of signified by the election of Ronald Reagan, uh, as well as Margaret Thatcher in, in Britain and Helmut Kohl in Germany, there was sort of a conservative reaction to this, sort of a take-it-back by people who were rich. It's been really been going on since 1913 with the institution of the income tax, the federal level, where the, those who didn't want to pay taxes um, became ascendant, and after 1980, they have really become ascendant, so there's been an enormous explosion of inequality nationally, and since 80% of the population lives in metropolises of couple couple hundred thousand or more, so we really are an urban nation, as you said in your introductory remarks. These things are reflected and actually produced in cities themselves. Um, I think with the, um, with the recent presidential election, we're going to be facing these issues just right in front of our faces almost every day. I, I would be the last one to try to predict what's going to happen, how it's going to turn out, how things will move, who knows. Uh, But we're certainly not going to get these things off the agenda. And my assertion in the book is that what we need and what we're likely to get is an urban policy where cities recognize that these issues, I mean, I identify these two, austerity in schools, but also food and the drug war, as being four that are just sort of in the headlines every day, in your face, you can't avoid them. Cities are upset, they're angry. Cities, by the way tend to elect Democrats Mm -hmm. to be mayors, and Democratic city councils, not state houses, not state uh, legislatures, and we know not the Congress and the presidency, so that um, I think there's a possibility that these things will stay high on the agenda. Uh, God knows what the Trump presidency will bring us, or the the Trump presidency combined with the Republican Congress, and very likely a uh, an ever more republican supreme court uh, but pressures from the cities aren't going to stop these problems are there everybody knows about them everybody talks about them and i'm asserting in this book that i have to rethink this for the election that's for sure my sort of optimism at the end that that these things will be uh, will stay on the agenda and there will be pressures from cities uh, to make changes and those changes will register nationally
0: The other side is – and you touched on this before in in talking about the kind of historical DNA of the country and this Jeffersonian-Hamiltonian battle between urban and rural. And it seems to me that that battle has now come to the fore and that that's going to be a fundamental issue certainly for the next four years in terms of, of limited resources and the austerity that you're talking about, and in terms of who gets those resources and whether or not more attention is paid to rural America, which clearly you know wanted its voice heard, versus urban America, which has really been more dominant, although not successfully, but certainly more dominant politically for a long time?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and I have to admit that I haven't yet quite figured out what is meant by rural america you know i use this number that four out of five americans live in a metropolis with more than 200,000 people now that, those are those are large metropolitan areas of course in those metropolitan areas there are people who call themselves rural but it you know the rural population in the united states is really quite small i mean we're talking about Twenty percent, maybe, and um, they're already vastly overrepresented because of the way in which we Mm -hmm. construct the Senate uh, and and the way in which indeed the way in which we elect the president. um, You know, we get tremendous overrepresentation of people in very sparsely populated areas. Um, So uh, I don't, I just, I don't quite get it. I this was not. A rural revolution. I don't think this was um, a vote. After all, now it's important to remember: of the voting age population of citizens in the United States, roughly 26% voted for Clinton, and roughly 24 or 25% voted for Trump. Mm. That is, it's 25 and 25. The other half didn't vote at all. Right. So there's no mandate. There was not a mandate for Obama similarly. It was the same kind of percentages in both of his elections and in prior elections. So half the, half the voting age pop- eligible population doesn't vote. Um, so we don't really know what the country wants, and we don't really know who's rural. So an awful lot of this punditry is, is not very carefully thought through. There clearly was an expression <laughs> of upset by the white working class. I mean, who can doubt that? But for them to claim that they're rural uh, because they drive um, trucks or um, have large yards uh, just doesn't quite make sense. They're entirely dependent on things that the metropolis delivers, manufactures, sets the tone for. And they're all, they all live in metropolises. So uh, I think there's something else going on um clearly a lot of people feel disenfranchised clearly we missed the boat we who thought that hillary would be elected um clearly the democrats um didn't pay attention to what was going on on the ground in the country but i'm saying that that stuff on the ground is in the cities and suburbs as well as in the in in the rural areas
0: when you break down the numbers, and, and, and I agree with you that it, it, there isn't a clear definition of, of what rural is, other than to say, you know, the, the non-urban areas, that traditionally, from a politi- purely political perspective, the, the numbers for Democrats in hardcore urban areas, be they Philadelphia, be they Detroit, be they whatever, are, are eno- enough to offset what tends to be a more Republican, rural, or suburban vote, and that didn't happen this time around.
1: That, that's right. Uh, well, it did happen in California, <laughs> in spades, right? California is really a very, very large urban vote, even though there's just about as large uh, Rural, unquote, population in California is elsewhere. So I think it's something else going on. I think the vote was by people who live in depressed, uh, previously industrialized areas Mm -hmm. uh, that have lost uh, employment over the last 40 years. And clearly, neither the Democrats nor the Republicans cared sufficiently about them. The Republicans didn't do anything for them, they supported. Uh, a different suburban constituency, and the Democrats were unable to get past any laws that provided uh, adequate help. Um, look, I think also, uh, I mean, I, this is not something in the book, but I think the inattention of the uh, Democrats after the 2008 uh, financial crisis of the banks uh, spent too much time rescuing the banks and not enough time rescuing the millions of mortgage holders who went under. And that struck me as a really uh, inadequate policy pushed by um, the Wall Street people who wanted their money first. And it was, a, I think, a terrible political mistake. We see it played out in, in, in sort of high focus in the Detroit bankruptcy Mm uh of the last couple of years where um you know the most important thing in the bankruptcy from the perspective of the state is that the bondholders get paid not that the employees get paid not that detroit functions well not that the kids have good schools uh or good food um but instead on assuring that people with large investments get paid they haven't won everything in that score but they won Most of it. And the testimony from people who really know what's going on in Detroit, including the state treasurer, uh, the man who was in charge of uh, banking and fiscal matters for the state, uh, he indicts the state government. Uh, He says they wanted to get Detroit. They were willing to do this. And there were all kinds of routes to solving it that would have helped Detroiters that the state chose not to take. So, so, uh, well, I'm not really answering your question fully, but um, I think we're stuck with a big dilemma. And, uh, you know, in in just two quick quotes. In 1941, uh, Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis said, we may have democracy, or we may have wealth concentrated in the hands of a few, but we cannot have both. I think that's what this fight is all about. Um, And I say we need to focus on who is sort of, uh, I say, tossing our cities into the rapids. You know, it was uh, about 100 years ago, the mayor of Cleveland, Tom Johnson, a progressive, said that that he didn't mind pulling bodies out of the river as they floated by the city so that they wouldn't quite drown. Uh, But it would be so much better if they could stop others upstream from throwing them in. So what I'm saying is our cities, despite these focused revivals in a few cities, San Francisco, Seattle, Manhattan, so forth. Um, cities are, are, are really being hammered from the outside by corporate policy, by federal policy, and by state policy, and by suburban uh, sort of suburban privilege. Right.
0: Talk in, a little in bit. Of, school districts. Talk a little bit about Detroit, because in addition to shrinking as dramatically as it has with respect to population. When people talk about a slight renaissance in Detroit and some improvement, it really is kind of a gentrification of of a hardcore part of downtown Detroit. It really doesn't really address the larger issue of the city. Talk about that.
1: Well, uh, no, it certainly doesn't. Uh, There there was a a state treasurer named Robert Klein, and, and he blames three decades of hostility that's his word, from the state of Michigan for driving the city into bankruptcy. He points out that there are all kinds of common options uh, for uh, assisting cities that weren't taken. Revenue sharing uh, to make up for income tax losses as people left the city. Uh, regional districts for fire and police. Uh, federal funding for mass transit. Uh, tax-based sharing or regional government. Uh, he didn't even allow that the, the state governor didn't even allow more time for the emergency managers to to do this and and instead what state politicians did there as they've done in similar situations in other states but not such enormous bankruptcies they chose to blame detroit's problems on corruption on unions on over overly generous pension benefits, and we move all And this former state tax director and state treasurers says none of those were the primary causes of bankruptcy. Um, as it turns out, Detroit is bordered on its edge by... Uh, Detroit is almost entirely uh, black uh, population, Detroit, and it's bordered on its edge by um, white suburbs. Uh, let me quote the... Um, uh, let me quote the, uh, the the leader of one of these white suburbs. It's Oakland County. It's a uh, has a population of one and a quarter million, and it's reelected its uh, uh, chief executive for more than twenty years. This is a guy who likes high fences, and and in just uh, two years ago he explained his approach. I'm quoting him now. What we're going to do is turn Detroit into an Indian reservation where we herd all the Indians into the city, build a fence around it, and then throw in the blankets and corn, unquote. Now, you know, um, this represents Michigan State hostility toward this reservation where they can herd them all in and fence them in and then sort of strangle them. Um, And that's what's gone on. So the city has paid an enormously unfair burden uh, for being minority, for being poor, and for living with an old infrastructure that, uh, as in Cleveland and as in lots of old cities in the United States, uh, you know, is a hundred years or more older than the suburban infrastructure, which was built much later. So it needs to be repaired. And they don't repair it. And we saw this even in that suburb called the city of Flint, you know, with a a smaller population Mm -hmm. in Detroit, um, but also... Um, with this infrastructure, uh, totally inadequate and uh, misserved by federal EPA, by the state water regulators uh, and by city authorities so that people end up not having uh, potable water. So w- what I'm saying is these things are, are actually done Uh, to the cities. You know, austerity is something that that, the corporations or the federal government writing laws that the corporation like sort of does to the states, the states do to cities and cities do to their poorest neighborhoods. And so uh, I'm saying these are are actions taken by authorities who could take different actions, as you've suggested with the schools, and, and change things around. Whether this will happen or not, I'm not as optimistic as I was Six months ago, right. when I was finishing up this book, but uh, i think I think we all know these problems are there, uh, even even in the booming booming booming
0: san francisco i mean it 's interesting that there 's a lot of mythology also about some of these cities. you know Cleveland is another good example where you 've had gentrification in in parts of the downtown core, and yet it hasn 't touched really the bulk of Cleveland. But people think, well, Cleveland's improving, and it's just not.
1: You know your stuff. <laughs> Cleveland would almost be my very next example. Where are these? There's a few fancy apartment buildings or remade industrial buildings into nice lofts, and people live right. in them, but they don't have kids who go to Cleveland schools. <laughs> I mean, they're either too young or too old. Uh, they have a great time, and they, they, uh, but most people who are slightly well-off live outside the city boundaries and they just choke the city. Uh, You're absolutely right. And I don't think the state of Ohio is about to do something that changes now. They they may. They may. I mean, who knows when this will turn around. But yeah, no. Cleveland is a perfect example. I mean, one, you know, I'm in the city planning business so I would go on tours with friends who sort of do this kind of stuff in Cleveland. They show me all this wonderful new renovated stuff. (laughs) You walk out the door and you're, you're back in, in, in a, an abused, disused, um, sort of deprived city. Yeah, yeah. Where it's, uh, opportunities are very limited if you're not at one of the four uh, sort of major downtown institutions. You know, the hospitals, the art institutes, the, uh, the, the music uh, celebration, uh, beyond that, and the university. Beyond that, uh, there's not a lot there.
0: Is there you're any th- right. Is there anything that we can learn, and we're almost out of time, but is there anything that we can learn by looking at, and we've touched on some of them, some of the successful cities as as we look at San Francisco, as we look at New York, Seattle, just just some of the ones we've already named. Is there anything that we can learn from those examples that can be applied to some of these other cities?
1: Oh, I think... I mean, one of the things, that, that's a great question. One of the things, I, as I said, I'm a city planner, I care about this stuff. And city planners have lots and lots of ideas about how to improve cities, transit, uh, public spaces, um, land use patterns, uh, all kinds of things. And um, But they don't normally succeed, be- I argue, because of these pressures from outside that just don't allow them to do what they need to do. Uh, to make things work in the city, so w- w- my argument is, and the book is filled with small examples of good things, um even small examples of very good schools inside cities, think of the magnet schools, mm-hmm. uh, which are public schools, very good public schools, and uh, very successful programs of taking city kids where there aren't isn 't access to good schools out to good suburban schools in both those limited cases. Um, The successes are just tremendous. The evidence is very clear. Uh, So we know how to do it. We know what to do. But we're prevented by these outside uh, pressures. The most direct and obvious one is the drug war, which doesn't reduce drug use at all, but just moves it around and really victimizes the neighborhoods where the war takes place. Uh, creates a lot of violence. But also uh, uh, school spending being, you know, you can only spend what you have. And if you live in a poor jurisdiction, you don't have enough. To make the schools good so money is a big deal with schools um we do know how to solve these problems we know how to create much better transit systems i mean you know everybody celebrates portland or for that matter uh the metropolis of, of new york but but still um they're, they're basically choked by cars we know how to make changes for mass transit buses uh transit lanes um uh, and and street cars and subways, but, uh, cities, by themselves, can't do this as long as they're being beaten up from the outside. So, um, yeah, all kinds of things we can do. And I think, I mean, this is again the argument of the book. I think we're coming to a point, and we may have to wait four more years. I don't know. Coming to a point when cities say, wait a minute, it doesn't make any sense. You know, we have this destructive pressure from outside the cities. Why don't we do something sensible? And Raise the ante, insist that state governments change the rules, insist that we sort of snap this white noose that surrounds what we call cities, uh, and, uh, and equalize things a little bit. We'll all be much, much better off.
0: Bill Goldsmith, his book is Saving Our Cities, A Progressive Plan to Transform Urban America. Bill, I thank you so much for spending time with us.
1: Thank you, Jeff. It was my pleasure. Thank you.